Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Avoid Crisis Podcast. I'm Ray Arellano with our co-host Alan Plyler. And uh, this week we've got a wonderful guest. We're, ta- we're doing this fourth episode section here on aging in the elderly. And uh, uh, today we have a wonderful guest, a palliative care doctor, uh, Dr. Anita Gandhi. Um, so uh, let's let's get some hellos, Alan. Why don't you get your hello first, and then let's we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Gandhi real soon. Well, good to see you again, Ray, and uh, welcome, Dr. Gandhi, uh, Anita. I'm very excited to have you here, especially in this series as we've covered avoid crisis and thinking ahead and trying to decide how to prepare for situations that come up for aging and elderly. And I think your experience and uh, your knowledge is going to be very instrumental uh, conveyance of information for our listeners and looking forward to that. Maybe you can uh, start by giving a little bit of uh, your background and um, and really just what you do in palliative care as well. And then maybe we can uh, go through a couple of questions and have you uh, speak a little more into those items. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on the show. Ray, Alan, um, I'm really excited about being here. Um, there is so much information that um, can help our, our elderly patients and, and patients who are in families who are going through really rough times. Um, I, I'm a palliative care doctor. I help out families and patients um, who are patients who are chronically ill or seriously ill. It is extremely overwhelming when you're at this at the stage where someone's really, really sick and it can be very paralyzing for family to try to figure out what the best direction is of care for our, our patients. And 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 because they, they really want to focus on quality of life, but they want to make sure that they best support their loved ones. And so palliative care. Our aim is to support those patients and families. It's a team, it's an interdisciplinary team approach where we have a social worker, myself, the chaplain, and um, we're there to support the family. Yeah, you know, the palliative care concept is something that's really rooted in this uh, entire whole person kind of concept, right? I mean, you, you don't think of just about the medical issues, but maybe you can talk about some of the other issues that come up, everything from psychological to spiritual or all the other parts that are components of the whole practice of palliative care. You perfectly said it. It's very, it's holistic. Um, I'm actually also an integrative medicine doctor too. And, and that's why I really love the work that I do to help out families and patients when they're, especially when they're going through quite a bit, but it's really looking mind, body, spirit. Um, you know, it's very stressful at that time. Um, I really help to sort of understand the family and the patient and what's their views and values about their about their life and about the what they're sort of going through. Um, a lot of times families feel a lot of guilt um, that they may be feeling like they're not doing enough or not understand the disease and feel like if this was done, then she'd be, their loved one could get better. And I, a lot of times explain like, this is what's going on with the disease. These are normal aspects of normal disease that occur. And when our loved ones are sick, it's just really hard to see them go through that. What's what's the difference, Anita? What's the difference between palliative care and hospice? I mean, what's the progression 
of the stages of the steps here? So that's a great question. And in fact, people usually use that interchangeably, but they're not interchangeable. Um, Palliative care, I help patients that may have cancer or some sort of um, chronic illness, and they may not be hospice ready, but they really are appropriate for further treatments with chemotherapy. They need good pain management. They need medic- medications for depression or anxiety. They just need the support through it. And actually with good palliative care, um, patients do so much better with their treatments, with the, especially the cancer treatments. Um, there's many studies that actually show with good effective palliative care, because you're helping this, this person who's having a very stressed out experience. They may be pain in pain. They may be short of breath. They may be depressed, anxious. And many times in the medical field, we're focusing on the disease and we're not focusing on the person. And what palliative care does is it really focuses on the person. Um, and yeah, I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> um, hospice is yeah. yeah, yeah. And hospice is end of life care. And many of my patients are at end of life and they're terminal. And they don't want to come back to the hospital. They want to be comfortable. They want to be uh, having good pain control, symptom management, but just remain at home, not deal with treatments, not deal with um, just coming back to the hospital. And and to be honest, actually, people live a bit a month longer on hospice when we do it. And um, it's just a it's a very integrative approach. And I, I I always feel like it's not giving up, but really supporting our patients at at their end stage, but allowing them to spend the time with their family or, or in whatever way that best supports them. You know, the, the starting point for palliative care is always going to be some serious or life-threatening illness, right? And so there's the awareness that the individual has that this is happening to me. And then that leads to potentially a referral to your services as an example. But what is the process from an insurance standpoint that uh, really begins the palliative care, how long does it last? And then at the same time, kind of looking at that and saying, what is that psychological impact and how do you deal with that whenever you get that referral? And now you're going to talk to them, you know, whether it be cancer, maybe a bone marrow disorder, heart disease, cystic fibrosis, dementia, liver disease, kidney failure, any of, any of those triggers. I mean, how do you um, handle that from the insurance side? And then also, what about the diagnosis and just the psychological impact and working with the family and, and the uh, individual on those situations? Yeah. So from the insurance side, we've had a lot of support um, for palliative care. I think the problem we have in palliative care, there's just not enough providers and not enough physicians. And, and that's the, they're, they're short. It, and I would love to see us on board with patients even when they begin to have the chronic illness or even when they have the cancer. So I think a lot of it is just outreach and being able to have enough you know, physicians, providers to do that. As for when patients have come to palliative care, it, it can be stressful because they may have this preconceived notion that, that we're hospice and, you know, and things don't look good. But many of, most all my patients really appreciate the support. And I really just call it out. And I said, this must be a very stressful time for you. How are you doing? And really sit with the family and patients, not really to direct them a certain way, but more just to say, hey, this is what's going on. Um, How can we help you? Can we help you with pain? Can we help you with your symptoms? And then we provide disease process information. And, you know, sometimes I've got patients that are ready for hospice, but it, you know, they're just not there. I mean, physically 
and symptom wise, they would meet criteria, but they may not be there emotionally. And that's where our team helps support um, to kind of guide them through the process. But we're not really here to say, hey, and I don't ever say, oh, you're dying. You need to do hospice. Like it's really more of like, this is a rough time. How can we help you? How can we support you? And really providing disease process and really being gentle and, and supportive of that family and their views. How, how do you get referred into the case? How, how do people find find you or find a palliative care doctor? Do they, do they have to ask? Yeah, they do actually. Um, so I I work in the hospital, and and so many of my colleagues really appreciate palliative care. Um, I am very busy, and so I I can't always see everyone, but I try to um, try to get to the patients that really need me, and then. I, if I can't see them, I try to make a referral. So Stanford has a palliative care. UCSF has a palliative care. Um, Palo Alto Medical Foundation, Sutter, we have outpatient palliative care. Um, there are some uh, um, palliative care programs that are not associated with these big universities, but I remake the referrals as much as I can. Um, I think a lot of times though, the outpatient doctors look at us as hospice and that we're going to be scary and, you know, and change the goals and, and do a lot of things where um, it's, it's, it's not quite that way, but to be honest too, there's just not enough of us. So. You know, uh a question that I would have um, really is about... A lot of times the physicians, um, right, and they do a great job too. Um, they can't even... Did, did that pop out for her? Did you get... We were, we were, having, we were having some technology uh, issues. Yeah. You cut out just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. so uh, going, yeah. going back to some of this, uh, the questions, um, how do you measure progress or how do you measure the quality of life that you're involved in delivering or how do the patients kind of look at this and say you know are, if they're going through a, a period of continual deterioration that's got to be really difficult but um, palliative care is really designed to provide you with the highest quality of life um, during the, the journey right uh, how do you measure progress on and, and how do you you know measure results really on on the services that you're delivering I, I think we're back to technology uh, <clears throat> connection Please, issues. Now. I just sit with them. <laughs> I talk to them about what, yeah, about their views and values. I have some patients that are at the end of life and they want to, they want to be on the life support machines. They do want real cardiac resuscitation. And my job, my, my role is really to explain to them their disease and what that would entail. And, and sort of see where they're, where, 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 what are their, their goals? Like some may say, I'm okay with doing that, but if, if I'm going to be on the breathing machines a long time, I don't want that. So I, I make sure that we really are clear about what their wishes and goals are. Um, so I, I don't know that there's like, like, oh, I'm a success because this happened. It's more about have I supported the family and the patients? Do they understand their disease? Do they understand what the options are? And from there, um, help to support them. Yeah, okay. We, we keep having some of these uh, technical things, uh, but I think... Life and their decision. Yeah. I think that, <laughs> I think that uh, you know, it's a bit of a challenge with the technology, but that's okay. Um, I think part of what you were saying as far as measuring the results is it's simply looking at it with a criteria of have I communicated the 
disease in a way that they understand it and understand what they're facing. Uh, another is, have I provided the support that they need? And yeah. I think uh, another part of this is just, you know, with the communication and understanding, just to see that that's actually happening and then just being there for them and helping them as they go through this process. I think that's most of what you were saying. Um, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And, and and I find a lot of times my patients hear this information, they're not ready to make changes, but as they go down. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate, Anita, you keep cutting out. I don't know if your Wi-Fi's, uh, your Wi-Fi connection, how, how good that is. Um, We'll give it a second, and then I might keep going. Hopefully, you can hear me. Um, but you, you'd mentioned something about, I heard earlier about cardiac resuscitation. And then the other part was about life support. So I wanted to talk a little bit about those topics if if your connection comes back, but you're still frozen on here. Um Alan, I guess we can we can keep we can keep running with it uh, the best we can. Um, yeah. I, I you know I, I went through this with you know my parents as they were at end of life stages, and um, um, you know and and we had a neighbor who at one point we were helping to care for in San Francisco who had a uh, a, a DNR a do not resuscitate mm. order, and he actually uh, had thumbtacked it right inside the door as you walked into his apartment in San Francisco. And so the issue there was, is if ambulance, you know, uh, worker, you know, they, they arrive and they're going to get through the door. They, you want them to be able to see that right away and let everybody know that, Hey, this is, this is an effect. Do not resuscitate. Um, and I know that there's a, such a thing as a medical power of attorney that, mm -hmm. that sets out, if you're not able to make these decisions that you can set out what your wishes and desires are, but if there are certain decisions as to put on life support or not, or to do things, the medical power of attorney that, that, that the person actually signs prior to being in an incapacitated state is a very important document. Who are you going to give yeah. them power to, to take, make those yeah. decisions? And the, the decisions that have to be made, you know, when it comes to palliative care, um, are important because there's a number of decisions, both for the individual and for the family. Um, who's going to be providing the support? And then what are the wishes? Because, you know, it depends on the disease. It depends on what conditions they have. But for instance, the do not resuscitate that you're talking about is an important decision. I think another important decision is just to um, look at what the treatment options are. Um, you know, as we talked about machine interventions that can keep you alive, um, they keep you alive. And are you going to return to any kind of state of mental capacity? That's a question. Um, another thing is, is for instance, what about someone who um, goes through a coma as an example and is in a coma and could be in a coma for a long time without any awareness of whether or not they will return from a coma? Um, so glad to have you back, and Anita. I know, uh, you know, we're always challenged here with the technology and wireless. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to get all in the same room, but that's um, okay. If you can just kind of go back to some of the things we're talking about. We were talking about the kind of decisions that come up for the family and the individual um, as they are finding themselves in this situation at the end of life. 
Yeah, um, I we some of the things that I I try to address with families um, when I, t I talk about the disease, if they've got cancer, like what how it might progress, what what things we might expect. Um, the other components is to talk about cardiac resuscitation and life support, like you were just bringing up right now. Um, and to be honest, majority, especially with patients with um, any kind of chronic illness or terminal illness it's not beneficial to go through it and it and it can cause a lot of suffering. And so a lot of times I just ask families. So I explain that cardiac resuscitation involves, you know, um, shocking the heart, seat, pushing compressions on the chest, putting a patient on a, a mechanical machine, a ventilator. And then I talk about, you know, also if they're not in arrest, but if they would want to be on a breathing machine, if they have difficulty breathing. And, and when someone goes on the breathing machine, it, it's a rigid tube that affects their swallowing. They have to get sedated. They have to get medications to, for pain and knock them out. And, and those, that things, that really makes them much weaker and really debilitated after they get through it. And then cardiac resuscitation in certain, especially to be honest, in the healthy patient, even it's got a limit, but I mean, especially with a patient who's got underlying illness, it's not as it's not beneficial and, and the outcome's not good. So I always talk about allowing a natural death. You know, what about uh, let's take a situation where somebody has had, let's say, a uh, an intubation of some sort or they've had a stroke. And as a result of that, they are having difficulty swallowing, um, maybe even aspirating when they're trying to have food or liquid. Um, what are some of the issues you see just in palliative care with, for example, the simple act of swallowing? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, after a stroke, um, generally it, it is been, so I'm going to start talking about feeding tubes actually is what we're talking about. But so patients who do have a terminal illness and the terminal illness could be like cancer, it could be dementia, um, it could be even cardiac heart failure, anything terminal at at the end of life, patients have problems swallowing and may aspirate, or they may not want to eat. Many of my cancer patients don't want to eat. And that causes a lot of stress for my patients and families. They're, they're feeling like they're torturing their loved ones because they're not eating. And I just explained that it's really a natural progression. Um, patients with dementia have problems swallowing. They just can't coordinate the swallowing or they just don't feel like eating. And I just say to support where they're at. If they want to eat, give them food. If they, if they don't, then not. And if they're having problems swallowing, I just try to put them on the safest diet and leave it up. I put it in God's hands. I'm a spiritual kind of person. And I say, you know, whatever, if they're enjoying eating, allow them to eat, but they may go down the wrong way and, and they have an aspiration, but we can make them comfortable with hospice. Um, I do have some patients though that have had a stroke and it does make a sense, make sense to do a feeding tube. And that's a feeding tube in the stomach. And so there's, there's about maybe two situations where we do that. If we have someone with a cancer that's in the, up, in the upper neck, like a laryngeal sure. cancer, you know, then sure. head and neck cancer. It makes sense to do that. And patients who've just had a stroke where we do expect that they'll improve, we can do the feeding tube. And there can be complications that would prevent you from having a feeding tube as well. Um, you know, if you've had different surgeries and scar tissue, et cetera, yeah. uh, that, can, yeah. that can restrict that. Um, what about this, this issue they've talked about with the family mm -hmm. support and their guilt? How can, how can the, the family and the, the, the loved ones that are supporting this individual really get comfortable with what they're doing and, and kind of get comfortable that they don't need to do more, that they're doing enough just being there. 
Um, you know, I think that's where good disease process education and really support for the family. And I, and to be honest, I, I sort of, I think ever since my mom actually got dementia, I'm, my whole family are doctors, actually all of us and my mother, including, and it's been really hard for me. Um, I, I, it's hard to see my loved one sick and not see that person that I grew up with. And I recognize that with my families and my patients, because you're not just more death is a, is one component, but you're also mourning the loss of your loved one, depending. I mean, if it's dementia or whatever the illness, and then you're seeing them go through a lot and it's hard to see that. Um, and so I just provide support through that. Um, and I, my biggest thing is I explain to them like, we're a family of doctors and we can't provide the care for my mom. And in fact, I have her in assisted living, but making sure that we get to see her as much as we can. And, I just let the families know that they're providing a great gift if they're able to care for her at home and just to have a lot of compassion for themselves and to make sure they take time out for themselves and know that they are providing everything they possibly can for their loved one. And even if it's not enough, it's still enough because just being at home and around family is, is very powerful. Yeah, you know, sometimes I think about how um, a parent with a young child is taking care of that child, trying to meet their every need, and still the baby cries. And then yeah. much later, what ends up happening is we end up uh, taking care of our elderly parents, and they almost are the infant at that point. And uh, we can't, yeah. we can do everything we can, but um, they're still going to have the times that effectively they're crying, you know. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I remember. They're, they're I remember big, the, yeah. I, I, I remember. Go, uh, excuse me. Um, I remember going through that with my dad in particular. He was sick with pancreatic cancer for a longer period of time um, than when my mom passed. Uh, hers was much quicker. But my dad felt guilty about the kids being there. And don't you have other things to do? Don't you need to be at work or stuff? Like that? Dad, no. This is the most important thing right now going on yeah. in my life, at least. And, and then, well, I, you know, and you have to help with sometimes, you know, going to the bathroom or, or taking a bath or a shower, dressing and things like that. And I said, Dad, how many years did you do this for us as kids? Yeah. You know, wipe our nose, wipe our butt, you know, change our clothes. You know, yeah. I go, please give me give, give me the opportunity to do this for you. I want to, I want to do it with respect and with dignity. I don't, you know, I don't want you to be embarrassed about anything, but don't, this is, this is what we do, you know? And so, so that, that was the focus. It was the respect and dignity and the opportunity to kind of pay it back, if you will. That, that that's, that's wonderful. That's great yeah. that, you're, that you're able to spend that time with that. Yep. And um, Anita, you were talking earlier, we were talking earlier about the, the swallowing and the eating part. Um, and we talked about, you know, feeding tubes and so on. Um, but I did want to give an opportunity to talk more toward the very kind of the end of life, some things that happen. And I know one of the things that we were made aware of was that look at a certain point for the last couple of few days is on a, you know, you got a morphine drip and so on. There, there is no eating and it's very little drinking. And it's actually, you just take a sponge and kind of sponge the lips and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, keep, keep the mouth moist. Um, and then there could be like a, a gurgling sound that can happen. Um, can you explain or talk a little bit about like the very end of life, um, some issues and 
and and what to expect. I mean, as 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 maybe caregivers or people who may be in the hospital room. Yeah, yeah. So you will be at the end of life. Um, one of the things you'll find is that they don't eat. Um, and actually, that's the most comfortable way to go, because what happens is you're, you, you get dehydrated, your kidneys shut down and you produce these analgesic substances. It'll be like you're in heaven. It, it feels like just like bliss. Um, you do get gurgling because um, the saliva that, that normally we swallow, sometimes does not, they're not able to swallow or they might just have a lot of secretions and, and that gurgliness causes that. And it can be really kind of scary to know, you know to hear that sound and to have that there. Um, but it, it's, part of, it's part of the dying process. And the, the other part is morphine. Um, I think many times everyone, they may have this perception that we're giving morphine and we're trying to hasten things, but morphine is a really, or, or any kind of opiate or even Ativan, giving a good amount of symptom management for someone who's having maybe difficulty breathing, or maybe we don't know if they're having pain or not, but it, it actually helps them not to have discomfort or suffering. Because So all three of us, we can shift and move in bed, but usually at the end of life, someone's really lying in bed and and not able to shift and move and not make, able to make themselves comfortable. And so morphine can help with that piece and also help with the breathing and help them breathe comfortably um, at the end of life. Um, so I, I'm not sure if that has that answered your question, if you had any other. No, that, 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 that helped a lot. And um, when we were talking earlier and invited you to the show and talking about things, I remember one of the topics that you said you wanted to be sure to cover was about end of life options. And there's some legislation or something or what, what's, what, yeah. what's, the, what's going on there in this area? Yeah. So we do have something in California that's called the end of life option act. And I've had a, a few patients ask me about it. Um, basically, you, you have to go and see the doctor at least, I think, twice um, within the time frame of a few weeks. I can't remember if it's a month or a few weeks. And just to confirm that you want to take a lethal dose of medication to, hate, to cause your death um, early. And um, there, I know that there's an organ that's been really big and we've had some, um, some individuals who are, who've done, enacted that. I, I'm not, to be honest, it's not uh, some, it's the end of life option act. I feel like I'm not the biggest fan of, because I feel like if you get good hospice care, you can get really good symptom management and support through your time. But I, but I do have some, I have individuals who are asking about it. Um, so it was enacted, I believe of last year. Uh, January or yeah or maybe yeah in last year and um, we have been aware of it I mean helping support families and patients most of the time patients don't take it but they at least have that medication so that um, they if they want that option they have it there and, and did you mentioned I know we're all we're in California um, and Oregon has been known to have this for a while do you, do you know is, is this kind of a state by state issue then I guess people need yeah. to research it to, for the state that they're in Correct. Uh, yeah, state by state. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You know, I think it might be helpful to go through just palliative care on certain kinds of um, triggers. So let's just take, for example, dementia. You know, and, and the goal then is that uh, you're trying to provide the, the best care and quality of life for someone who's being impacted by deteriorating brain function. So yeah. there you're going to be dealing with cognition, memory their language, judgment, behavior, yeah. 
So there's going to be, for instance, palliative care that's around anxiety that the patient might have, right? Um, mm -hmm. Also family members, because they're going to actually lose contact with who they knew um, over time. And that's going to be very difficult. Um, so maybe you can talk just about the care plan relating to dementia as an example, and then we can talk about some other ones as well. That is a really great question and an important question, to be honest. Um, I think the biggest challenge with dementia is that you definitely lose your loved one. Your loved one is not the same person. Um, the biggest issue is just the agitation and the anxiety. And you'll have your parent with dementia staying up the whole night. And the poor, the poor caregivers, they work on top of trying to take care of their loved one. And so they're trying to sleep. I, I, I know my mother actually sleeping right next to my dad left the house in the middle of the night and walked two cities over. And thankfully she had her mail with her. She carried it. I don't know how she had that insight. And somebody randomly picked her up and brought her back to the house. And we wow. were like, oh my God, I know. And I think the biggest issue, yeah, the biggest issue with dementia is that, and many of my families and patients are like, I can't manage handle taking care of my patient, my loved one. Um, and it's really challenging. You know, I, I've taken my mother to the bank and she told the banker that I'm there to steal her money. Um, I think it's really hard. Dementia is awful. It's like a zombie. It's like a toddler that's grown up. And um, it is really, really hard. Um, and I feel I really have extra, extra support and feeling for my patients and families who have a loved one with dementia, because I know how, how difficult and many times the outpatient doctors and many physicians don't know how to manage the delirium, confusion, agitation of patients with dementia. Your biggest goal is you need to have them get a good night's sleep so that you can sleep. So the caregiver can sleep, honestly. And, and you also help their dementia and their delirium. And so I talk to my family members about using antipsychotic medications. I even talk about marijuana and I am a big proponent of using marijuana and CBD and fractionated marijuana for actually not just dementia patients, but just, I'm a big believer of it, but it does help with that as well. Um, so I, I, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Okay, let's talk about um palliative care for cardiovascular diseases and there you're dealing with heart failure coronary artery disease maybe a stroke um, aortic stenosis um, you know in those kind of situations you can have sort of this up and down uh, because it is heart related there can be good days bad days right yeah, um, yeah. What, what is the palliative care plan for cardiovascular diseases to work with yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's um, I'm really just supporting a patient and family and, and whatever goals and whatever treatments. And I've had a patient who's like 80 something with aortic stenosis, and we were easily able to get her a procedure. It was called a TAVR. And um, it's, it's not a major surgery. And it's a procedure they can do to help um, to, to fix the, the valve. And I can't remember the exactly what that stands for, but it's a, there's a procedure we can do or things that we can do even for any of my palliative care, like fields, but cardiac, usually I, I can do something where I can recommend, Hey, let's do this or let's not do this. And if, it, if we can avoid major surgery, heart failure is a little difficult, um, because there is a lot of ups and downs. And even though someone's got a really bad, 
um, pumping of their heart, they may be with us for a lot longer. So um, cardiac and that can be very challenging. Stroke uh, is a terrible thing as well. But um, I have patients who have a new stroke and we try to work on the best ways to support them. In my my wish list for the future, which I hope they could do one day, is using iPads and using um, technology to help really um, help support the stroke patients and help them do better. Um, but I do have patients who've had a number of strokes where it's hard to come back from that. Um, so I just have a whole sort of like kind of gamut of, of different kind of disease processes and, and places where individuals are at different trajectories. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about the palliative care for cancer because mm-hmm. I mean, cancer has this uh, this connotation that once you have cancer, um, you know, that's, that's a death sentence. But uh, it really depends on the type of cancer, the symptoms, the treatment, the age that you have. Uh, what the yeah. prognosis for recovery is and and you know there are people who are cancer survivors as well but what uh you know what are some of the you know symptoms and treatments that you're looking at and palliative care relating to cancers right and the and the stage of the cancer too yeah yeah. I mean, to be honest, it's a bit skewed on my end because I'm going to see certain patients. I'm going to, have to see, I'm going to see the patients with the severe symptoms, or I might see the patients that are more terminal. But I do agree with you. I've had, I've actually helped um, some of my patients. Actually, I had a patient. Her husband was a physician, and she's like, "I'm going on hospice. I don't want to do more chemo." She went on. She went on hospice. She wasn't eating very well and she wasn't walking around very well. But once she got on hospice, she got better and she was eating and, and improving. And she came off hospice and got more treatment. So generally, though, things with cancer that I'm dealing with, if I am if I have a patient who's ongoing chemo and treatments, is appetite. Their appetite may, may get down very badly and not eat as well. So I'm really trying to help promote their appetite. I, I take a very integrative approach and probably a little atypical in, in the way I approach it, but I'm a big bone broth person. So people need to have increased nutrition and even my patients are terminal and the family's really intent on getting, improving their condition. I recommend bone broth because it's all protein. And if, even if they drink a little bit, it helps kind of get improve them. And then I'm all about CBD and marijuana to help increase appetite, to help them with that. Um, Pain management is huge. And a lot of times people think, oh, I'm going to get addicted. But it is so important to get good symptom control. Because if you're miserable and you're in pain and you're nauseous and all this, you're you're not going to want to do anything. So if you get good pain management, that makes a huge difference. <laughs> and then nausea. That's something I commonly see. And in fact, I had like patients on hospice, they were going on hospice and they were just looked awful. And I gave them good pain management around the clock. I gave them medications to help them with nausea. The next day where they were a totally different person. <coughs> Excuse me. I have, so, I have a, another question really, which is individuals that are going through the end of life really have a lot of thoughts about what their life has been, what they've accomplished, uh, what they wanted to do in life, um, whether they accomplished that, whether they're happy. One of the the worst things I think that can happen in the end of life is if someone struggles with depression. And I'm sure that you face that in palliative care quite a bit. What, What are some of your thoughts around just how depression happens and how to help deal with it? 
Um, I am a big believer of we've got to treat the depression, but I, a lot of times I, I do give the medication, but sometimes there's just things that are not being said. Like I know that sometimes a patient is trying to protect the family. And so there's things that they want to talk about, but they can't approach the family with. And sometimes the family wants to talk to the patient or they want to just, and just kind of say things that are going on, but everyone's afraid to talk about it because they, they don't want to create some sort of distress. Um, so I, I actually find that if someone is end of life hospice with great support from a therapist, a chaplain, um, the team, is really vital and very important. And I have patients and I have family and, uh, and families telling me a lot of things that they're just trying to like unload. And I'm the one that they talk to me about that. And, and it really helps them sort of to, to, to get support from that. But I find that the depression is a lot of, of that as well too. Wow. This has been a, a an amazing, uh, I learned a lot of stuff. Thank, thank you so much, uh, uh, Anita. Um, our kind of tagline here at the Avoid Crisis podcast is analyze, decide, act, and avoid crisis. And so in this context, just kind of wrap things up here. Um, what, what, are, what, are, what, what should our listeners do from this analyze, decide, act perspective? Um, as they prepare for end-of-life issues, maybe with themselves or for the loved ones that they're caring for? I think just having a conversation with your family about what's important to you at, at the end of life and what kind of treatments and things you would like to do. And, and you may not have that clear in your mind, but just talking about that, I think it's very helpful. Um, I've certainly learned a lot from this um, discussion today, too. And I think it's wonderful, Dr. Gandhi, uh, Nina, that you've been able to come on and help to educate us and our listeners and uh, being a part of this series, which is um, aging and elderly and just the palliative care and, and the decisions to be made. It's really great to get the conversations going with your family and loved ones and really avoid crisis from that. So Excellent. thank you very much for coming on today. And uh, being here in episode 15 of Avoid Crisis, Palliative Care and Decisions. So thanks yep. again. Thank you. Thank and, you. you and, and to our, to our listeners, uh, in this series about aging and elderly and end-of-life issues, um, we understand that there are a lot of financial and legal issues that come with this stage as well. So in our next episode, we're going to have uh, a guest who's going to help uh, talk to us about those topics in this general area. Um, until then, thanks again for listening, and uh, we'll see you for the next episode of the Avoid Crisis podcast. Thank you.